He was standing up on the stage and he concluded by saying, we kind of are the chosen ones. We are the ones that create things. We're like artists. We're inventors. We're entrepreneurs. We're true entrepreneurs. And then he said, I mean, we're not doctors and lawyers. That's Rex Elliott, renowned trial attorney and co-founder of Cooper Elliott. And a lot of people would say, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Because I was the only lawyer in that room, I knew right then and there I was in the right place. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Rex Elliott to discuss how to reframe adversity as an opportunity to grow, how to leverage the media in high-profile cases, and why the most valuable lessons often come not from our wins, but from our losses local TV stations in the courtroom. I sat there as soon as I heard the first jury verdict form was a defense verdict. I knew that every single one after that was going to be. It took the judge an hour and a half with the cameras rolling and me sitting there with my clients to read off every single defense verdict. I think I learned more in that trial about being a trial lawyer than I did in any other case and it was a loss because the reality is I learned more from losing than I think I've ever learned in any case from winning. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Rex Elliott is the co-founder of Cooper Elliott, one of the nation's most respected law firms with a reputation for excellence in representing victims in complex and oftentimes unprecedented cases. I began our conversation by asking Rex about the experiences that shaped him into becoming the leader he is today. You know, I look back at my childhood and I grew up in a community that was really economically diverse. We had a lot of people that had a ton of money, a middle class in our community, and then a lower class. And I was in that lower class. I think my childhood and the community I was raised in was the greatest gift I could ever have because we didn't have very much money, but I was able to see what was around me and what was possible. And so I was always raised to believe that I could do anything that I wanted to do. And I knew I didn't want to grow up in the conditions that I grew up in. Having said that, I have tremendous memories of my childhood. I had wonderful, loving parents who were much more focused on raising their kids the right way and much less focused on making a lot of money. And so I attribute that sort of experience growing up to the hunger that I have, the drive that I have. But by the same token, I still do very much believe that I had advantages in life that many people don't have, which is why I'm so passionate about representing the underdog and making sure I take care of people that need it the most. I'm curious about the route 
to that. So from my understanding, I think your grandfather was a lawyer. Yeah. Like, what kind of inspired you to become an attorney? Yeah. You know, it, most people don't decide what they're going to do until they get much later in life. I have a vivid recollection. I was probably eight years old. My grandfather was this big towering presence. He was six foot six and he was a trial lawyer in Columbus. And he would take me down to the courthouse and I'd watch him try cases. His presence in the courtroom and the way he spoke to juries got me right away. And so from a very early age, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get to law school. I wanted to be in law school. I had two impediments, two barriers to getting there. Number one, I was an athlete growing up. And so I, I kind of got this dumb jock moniker about me. You know, I played football, basketball, baseball. People thought that was my interest. And I always felt like I was fighting to make sure that people understood I had intelligence and I had an intellect as well. And the second thing was money. I wondered if I could afford college to begin with. And then I certainly law school appeared a little bit of out, out of reach financially, but I just continued on the path and told myself I'd figure it out when we got there. Yeah. And from what I hear, you paid your way through college and, and in law school through working in, in construction. I did. I actually started working on uh, building high voltage transmission power lines in high school. I would go away for the summers. I was in Minnesota, New Mexico, California. I was in Las Vegas for, I took a year off between college and law school to make enough money to go to law school. I took a semester off in college. I ended up graduating in three and a half years because I had to. I had to uh, to leave college and go away for eight months so that I could make some money to return to school. It's like I said, I think that had a profound impact on me too, because I really learned at a young age what hard work was all about and what hard work could do for you. Did you ever have, I mean, just even going through college, then in law school, like any doubts or hesitations, like, am I in the right place? Am I pursuing the right path? Yeah. I uh, many times questioned whether or not I was capable enough to do this. On the financial side of things, I got to law school with enough money to make it through two years of law school. And again, I just figured out I'd go through and I'd figure it out by the time I got to my third year. And the first two years were financed largely through the money I'd made in the year off between college and law school and also loans, right? Well, I maxed out my loans for the third year. So I applied for a graduate school fellowship at Syracuse University, and I was one of two graduate school fellowships awarded that year. That's the only way I could have gotten through my third year. It, it paid my entire tuition and gave me a stipend for that third year. So big part of me thinks that there's been a whole lot of hard work in this, but there's been a little bit of luck along the way as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it sounds like it. And, and I think you've already had this realization, but with a lot of the people that I speak with that come from backgrounds of adversity today, they look at that as like, what an advantage. It's helped me develop a lot of just the right mindset, the right skills, the right capabilities that perhaps I may not have developed if I came from a life of privilege. Oh, no question about it. I can look back at points in my life there's an old parable about a Chinese farmer. It's could be good, could be bad, right? Something really good happens in somebody's life, and it turns out to be not such a good thing, right? Or something really bad and challenging happens. It turns out to be one of the best things that ever happened to him. I can go back in my life, like Steve Jobs said, when you connect the dots backwards, and I can look at, at things that happened in my life that I thought were bad at the time that turned out to be incredible lessons and gifts for me that, that led me on to great things. And I can do the same thing about good things. If you have really good things that happen to you and you get all prideful and you forget where you came from and you start to run over people and things of that nature, 
it can turn into a really bad thing. So never gotten too high over the good things that happen. And I've always, in the low moments, I've tried to see through the moment and try to figure out why it was that that was happening to me at the time, trying to make sure that I understood, that I saw the path that was being sort of laid out for me. I think if you're not listening and and observing those kinds of things, you'll miss them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious about when you graduated from law school and you started working at at a larger firm representing corporations, then that was before stepping into private practice. Why that transition? Yeah, well, first of all, kind of to your point about wondering if I was capable here, um, certainly I I got through college, did very well, uh, undergrad at a very challenging uh, small liberal arts school, Denison University. And then I went on to Syracuse University for law school. And when I got to Syracuse, I wondered, am I smart enough for this? Can I compete with um, a lot of really smart people? And I could. I demonstrated that. I graduated in the top 2% of my class through a lot of hard work, not because I was smarter than everybody else, but because I worked really, really hard. I I always say I think I outworked people. Then I get to Sullivan and Cromwell, which is arguably, if not the best, then one of the best law firms in the entire world. And we had 90 new associates start my class, and nobody was from Syracuse. Nobody was from a tier two law school that I was. They were from Harvard and Yale and Penn and Michigan and Stanford and Virginia. And I wondered then, am I in the right place? And turned out I was. It was a remarkable experience for me. But at each stage, I think I benefited from questioning whether or not I had it in me to get through that next part of my life. And I think that really caused me to work incredibly hard to make sure I didn't fail. Right. So then why leave and why open up your own practice? Yeah, so I had a tremendous experience in New York City. I was there uh, a little shy of four years. Wonderful experience. I did a lot of work in the NFL antitrust cases, um, so I had direct access to the NFL executives. I deposed NFLPA significant executives. Um, I got to meet players. I worked on the RJR Nabisco takeover, which was at the time the largest takeover in our country. And so I did some amazing things, but I had an experience at Sullivan and Cromwell. I worked on a team that worked on a pro bono death penalty case down in North Carolina. It was an African-American man who was dating a white woman in North Carolina. And there was a scuffle late at night and the African-American man killed her former white boyfriend. He had always claimed self-defense. He had always claimed that the guy was coming after him with a knife. And the reality is, though, this guy who was also in the military went to trial with a court-appointed lawyer who happened to be a divorce lawyer. The case was tried in front of an all-white jury. This is a black man that killed a white man, black man who was dating a white woman, and all-white jury. His divorce lawyer, court-appointed lawyer, started crying and ran out of the courtroom in his closing argument, and he was convicted of the murder and put on death row. And so our charge at Sullivan and Cromwell was to get him off death row. And the individual's name was Willie Gladden. He was a wonderful, wonderful person. I got a chance to sit down with him an awful lot. And we tried the case and the only issue was death or life in prison. And we were able to get him off death row and a life in prison. He's since been able to get out of prison and he's led a really productive life. I felt for the first time that my license to practice law was being used in the way that God intended me to use it. I was helping another person that needed it the most. I loved my experience in big law firms, 
But the reality is, at some point when you're representing Fortune 500 companies, and it's really, really important work, but I felt at some point like I was moving money around a balance sheet, that I really wasn't impacting the world. And that's what led me to leave big law firms and start my own practice where I could impact people. And from what I hear, even early on with Cooper Elliott, like you didn't shy away from the tough cases, right? You didn't shy away from the trial work where as many words, I mean, you could have started teeing up, no disrespect, but soft tissue auto accident cases could have become the bread and butter of the firm. But even early on, you were taking on a lot of risk. Exactly. Our mantra early on was to take on the toughest cases, the way we marketed back then, because I don't do TV advertising. I never have. I'm not criticizing TV advertising lawyers. I think it's very important and some of it's very good. But my business model was to try tough cases and get in the media. And people would learn about me that way. It was a tough fact to, uh, to follow because one of our early cases, we sued the mayor of Columbus and the four top commanders in the Columbus Police Department. It was a public figure defamation case. We tried the case for six weeks. And I'll never forget it. So we had a bunch of defendants. We had a bunch of claims. I think we had 46 different jury verdict forms that the jury had to fill out. Tried the case for six weeks. The jury was out for a week and a half. At some point, I just went back to my office and started working. You know, I figured they'd get to a decision sooner or later, and they did. And what the jury had determined was that the statements were false, but in a public figure case, you have to prove actual malice. You have to prove they knew they were false, and the jury couldn't get there. So with all the local TV stations in the courtroom. I sat there as soon as I heard the first jury verdict form was a defense verdict. I knew that every single one after that was going to be. It took the judge an hour and a half with the cameras rolling and me sitting there with my clients to read off every single defense verdict. And we were on the front page of the paper for weeks during this trial, and it was really good for us. I think I learned more in that trial about being a trial lawyer than I did in any other case, and it was a loss. Because the reality is, when I started my own law firm at the age of 32, I hadn't tried a lot of cases. You don't try cases for the most part in big firms. And so this was one of my early entry into the courtroom and trial work. And we had a lot of great successes in those years too. But I always look back at that one as, again, it was just a great gift. I learned more from losing than I think I've ever learned in any case from winning. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your perspective on just the importance of not just trying tough cases, but also the media component. Why, why are both important? Yeah, the media is just so critically. I represent underdogs and people who are fighting for a cause for the most part. The media can be a powerful partner with you in terms of getting the message out. So I've always used the media as almost a member of our team. And if you're good to them and you don't ever misstate things to them and you take good care of them, they will be powerful partners for you. And I've used the media almost as my own marketing and advertising machine for the last 25 years. So for someone who's listening to this podcast and they might be thinking, well, how can I get the media to give me attention on, on my cases? Like, what, what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's the, you have to have the case, right? The case that attracts the, the interest, but you also have to understand when there's an important media moment. So right now we are representing the family of a 20-year-old black man who was shot and killed by a Columbus police officer last August 30th. His name's Donovan Lewis. He was asleep in his bed at 2.30 in the morning in a very low-income neighborhood, and five Columbus police officers showed up at 2.30 in the morning to serve 
a misdemeanor arrest warrant. Now, I don't know about you, but they're not serving misdemeanor arrest warrants in my, my neighborhood. Police officers came into his apartment. They also had a canine dog. And within less than a second of opening his bedroom door as Donovan was trying to get up out of bed, a police officer shot and killed him. We had a major press conference last week because of the news in Memphis. And what we learned in Memphis is that that city moved very, very quickly to terminate police officers, to charge them with homicide when it mattered in a matter of weeks. In Columbus, Ohio, we've been five plus months since this police officer shot this unarmed black man. And the police officer is on paid administrative leave. He's not working. He's still getting paid. And he hadn't been charged. And so we had to recognize that that was a moment for us to speak to the people of Ohio, and we did, and I thought it was very effective. So first, you have to have the case, but you also have to understand what the angle is. Yeah, and it's interesting because with a lot of the difficult cases that you've tried, let's say particularly the ones that involve, let's say, race relations, right? How have you kind of built a brand around you being a white male, yeah. right, that's that's taking on these types of cases, whereas you see, I mean, we've had him on the podcast, Ben Crump, right? He's also involved in a lot of these types of civil cases. What do you think it is about you and your brand that kind of attracts those families to reach out to you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't a big question, you know? I mean, you're a white guy from this privileged community in Columbus. How are you possibly going to understand what my family goes through, right? And so my response to that is, you're right, I don't know firsthand what happens in those communities. But what I can tell you is this, police shootings disproportionately affect people of color, typically young African-American men. And what happens when that occurs is that largely the black community gets up in arms. And the point I made is that it is time for all of us to get angry and to get on TV and say, enough is enough. Yes, I'm not a black man, I'm a white man. But it should be just as outrageous for white men and white women as it is for black men and black women. Yeah, agreed. And it seems like with a number of the cases that you've tried, you're kind of going into a gray area from a legal regulation standpoint. I mean, for example, like the college hazing cases, if you could speak to some of that. Yeah, absolutely. And what you have to understand, too, is in the civil system of justice, it's tough, right? Because all we can do with a jury is recover money. I can tell you, Michael, I have never had a client come into my office and say, I've just lost my husband or I've just lost my son. What's this worth? Nobody ever asks that question. You know what they do ask? They say, what can I do to make sure this doesn't happen to another family? And so the hazing cases have, we've been doing this for a little over a decade, and it's really become a mission for me because in our practice, we are always looking for, in the context of the case, how can we change the world to make it a safer place? How can we meet our clients' objectives to potentially not have another family go through this. And so in the hazing cases, we've obviously used the media, I think, very effectively. In the hazing cases, the way I look at these cases, there are a number of different participants in hazing. There's the 18 to 22-year-old kids, there are the national fraternity and sorority organizations, and then there's the universities. And I frankly think that we've spent way too much time talking about the 18 to 22-year-old kids, when in reality, all they are doing is living within a system that was created for them by adults. We need to focus on the national organizations and the universities to put a stop to this. If we are going to start putting in the hands of 18 to 22-year-old kids to stop hazing in this country, it's never going to happen. Michael, we have had a hazing death on a college campus in this country every single year since 1959. 
and it's become my mission to to do everything I can to end hazing altogether. Yeah. And and for people listening who may not be familiar, if you could ex- speak to your experience representing Stone Foltz and, and his family. I'll even go back to, we represented first Colin Wyant at Ohio University who was killed in a hazing incident when he was forced to ingest whippets and it had a terrible adverse impact on him. And we investigated and found out that it was a fraternity hazing a situation. We were off to the races there. Stone Foltz was a little clearer in the sense that Stone died as a result of a hazing ritual involving the entire pledge class. And what happened on March 4th, 2021, is in the Pike fraternity, Stone and his pledge brothers were brought into a house. They were dressed up. They were told to take their ties off, blindfold themselves. They were ushered down to a basement. Blindfold is taken off and their big brother is announced and their big brother has an entire bottle of alcohol that they then pass to their little brother, the pledge, and they are told to finish the bottle before they can leave the basement. The actives have previously told the pledges to email their professors because they're probably not going to be at school the next day. They're told to bring a loaf of bread and a gallon of water, and they have chairs put up for them with garbage cans right next to the chair so that they can vomit in the garbage cans. Stone was given an entire liter of Evan Williams bourbon, and Stone was 150 pounds. He wasn't a big drinker. He had confided to his mom that he was really worried and nervous about the event before it happened. He had Googled how to drink a large amount of alcohol in a short period of time. I think his strategy was to try to get it over as quickly as possible, to try to rip the Band-Aid off. And at the same time, he's being told by his active brothers, right, that they're going to take care of him. He's going to be safe. He's not going to feel too good the next day, but everything's going to be okay. He does it, and within a very short period of time, he's incapacitated. We have video. He just looks terrible. They're making fun of him, by the way, at the point in time that he's clearly going downhill. They then drive him home to his apartment, put him on the couch face down with a trash can right next to him, and then they leave. A half an hour later, his roommate comes home, and Stone's in the last moments of his life. He's having trouble breathing. His roommate begins CPR. They get the first responders there. They get him to the hospital. When he got to the hospital, his blood alcohol was 0.394, and he had less than 9% of his brain activity available to him. He was effectively brain dead. And what his mom and dad, who, by the way, were two and a half hours away, they had to endure that drive all the way up to Toledo, Ohio, knowing that their son was probably not going to make it. And for the next three days, they sat at his bedside while doctors got his organs healthy enough to harvest to donate. Stone got a driver's license when he was 16, not because, like most of us, he wanted to drive, but because he wanted to be an organ donor. And they sure enough did that. He donated his heart, lungs, tissue, went to 132 different people. An amazing job was done around the organ donation. But imagine that. You're sitting at your son's bedside for three days simply because we're trying to get his organs healthy enough to give to somebody else. And Stone's parents made him a promise. And I've made a promise to Stone through his parents. And that promise was that they would never leave him alone again. They would never forget him. And that's what this whole mission uh, to end hazing is all about. And it's, it's interesting hearing this. Maybe I'm, I'm so far removed from college, but I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, what the hell are people thinking? It, it, it just, it's senseless. And part of the problem is that every single year, it's got to get a little more challenging for the people that come along, right? I went through it, so I got to make it a little tougher for the next person around. That's the reason I've called for an end to pledge programs across the country. 
They're antiquated. They're archaic. There's absolutely no purpose for a pledge program anymore. And that's where all these deaths and injuries are occurring because there's an imbalance of power. The actives have something the pledges want. The pledges go through a process. At some point, they become invested. And they're so far down the path, there's no turning back. And think about it for a second, too. These 18 and 19-year-old kids are on a college campus. They're living independently for the first time in their lives. The last thing they'd want to do is quit something they started, be maybe shamed on campus, and so on and so forth. And so I think we need to eliminate pledge programs if we want the Greek system to survive. Because in my view, one more death on a college campus in this country is too much. Yeah. Look, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I imagine there's people that may be critical of you of saying, well, Rex, this has been tradition. This has been around for so many years. And in the case of somebody like Stone, he didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do or go against his will, right? Of course, we know like bullying and peer pressure and all those things are real, but how much of that falls on personal responsibility versus somebody else? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think people who say that just don't have an understanding of what happens. I don't think there's freedom of choice here. If there was freedom of choice, Stone would have walked away from the entire situation. As I said before, I think they're in a system. They're being told they're going to be fine. They're being told that everybody's done it before them. And like I said, I mean, I think the reality is, and one of the things that we're trying to teach people around the country, I speak at universities everywhere with the Fultzes and with the Wyants to educate people. The reality is you very well can die or be injured, particularly with the administration of alcohol and drugs in the pledging process. And so it is important to walk away. The other really important thing about this discussion is that laws in states across the country are being passed today. There was one in the state of Ohio. It's called Collins Law after our client at Ohio University, Colin Wyant. Unfortunately, that law didn't pass until after Stone's death. So the Wyants had tried to get that through, and for some unknown reason, it just stopped. I personally believe there's a lot of ex-fraternity members that are legislators. Uh, But when Stone died, it gained tremendous support and went across the finish line. What it does is it increases criminal penalties for acts of hazing that lead to death and serious injury and to a felony. So kids in the state of Ohio that do this and there's a serious event are going to spend five, maybe 10 years in prison. It also requires transparency. So universities have to disclose fraternities and sororities that have been complained about, that have had hazing situations, suspended reprimanded, et cetera. And finally, there's a mandatory reporting component to that law, which requires people that learn about, know about, observe, see, get any information about hazing to report that to law enforcement, not campus security, law enforcement. And the reason I say all this is that people out there may think, gosh, this isn't going to happen to me. The odds are low. But what I can tell you is, number one, that's not true. You can lose your life. But number two, you could also be on the other side of this. You could be the hazer, and you could be in the criminal justice system. You could be expelled from your college. Your life could take a left-hand turn very, very quickly if you haze on college campuses. So I think that's a really important message because we focus so much on the person that's been hurt or died, but I think there are really severe bad consequences for the hazers as well. Yeah. Is there, is there anything that other people can do to kind of help move this cause forward? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, parents, you got to ed- educate your kids. And I said, we've spoken at colleges all around the country. And when a hazing death happens, people say the kids aren't listening. I couldn't disagree with that more. I think they are listening. I think they just think it's not going to happen to them. 
parents, educate your kids. It can happen to them. And I think equally, educate your kids about what can happen if they are on the other side of that. It could have a profound impact on their lives. So I think those are very important messages. The other really important thing that I think we've accomplished in Stone's case, we just settled the university portion of the case with Bowling Green State University. It was the largest settlement by a public university in a hazing case. And as part of that settlement, kind of the mission of our law firm, which is not just to get compensation for our clients, but also to do things that will help change the world, make it a safer place. One of the items of our settlement with Bowling Green was that Bowling Green is now going to partner with the Fultz family to engage in Greek reform in an effort to put a stop to this, not just on Bowling Green's campus, but hopefully on campuses throughout the state and around the country. So I think it's really, really important for universities to get involved and be way more proactive on the front end. They do a great job after somebody's died of expelling students and punishing people in the whole nine yards. You got to start working harder on the front end to make sure this doesn't happen. Yeah. And, uh, and I will say, I know you mentioned earlier, just kind of the business model of the firm. You know, from the time you and I first met years ago, you were very entrepreneurial. Were you always entrepreneurial? The business of the practice of law has always fascinated me. One of the early things I did after I started my law firm is I helped found the Columbus chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization in Columbus, and I've been an EO member since 1999. And I'll never forget, early in my EO tenure, I was at a, a retreat, an EO retreat at the Kauffman Center in Kansas City. There were 750 entrepreneurs there. And the keynote speaker, I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody who sold his tech company, you know, one of those for hundreds of millions of dollars, but no sales, that kind of thing back in that time frame. And he was standing up on the stage and he concluded by saying, we kind of are the chosen ones. We are the ones that create things. We're like artists. We're inventors. We're entrepreneurs. We're true entrepreneurs. And then he said, I mean, we're not doctors and lawyers. And I remember looking around the room and wondering if I was the only lawyer in the room, and I think I was. And a lot of people would say, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Because I was the only lawyer in that room, I knew right then and there I was in the right place. And what I've learned on the business side throughout the years has been critically important to where my law firm is today. Yeah. And I think certainly when it comes to like scaling your impact and not just driving like legislative change, but being able to reach and impact more people nationwide. If you could speak to what have been some of the things you've done in the firm and the business that have made the greatest impact? Yeah. Well, I, th I think, first of all, EO was really important to me. But in my early EO years, I'd go to a conference and I'd come back and I'd have three or four new ideas that I'd plug in. And it got to the point where people would say, he's going to a conference. So just expect when he comes. I mean, we did things, Michael, like we'd have Monday morning sales huddles, okay? All our lawyers in, in the lobby of our law firm talking about wins and, and where they're having a tough time with things, that just didn't happen in law firms. I think what really changed and moved the needle for me on that front is two things. One is, you know, I read the book Traction and it had a profound impact on me and that led me into EOS. And so we've incorporated EOS into our law firm about 10 years ago. It's kind of interesting because my partner and I sat down 10 years ago. We were 18 years into it, and we sat down to create our core values. We had been operating for 18 years without core values. We sat down off-site for an entire day, and we got to our core values, and guess what? It's the first time we stated them, but we had been living those core values for 18 years. But it's amazing how 
different life is in a business when you actually state your core values and you not only do everything you can to live them inside the law firm, but outside the law firm. And then I think even graduating up here to CRISP and being around a lot of lawyers that also run their law firms as businesses has had a profound impact on all of us and my law firm. We've done so many things that I never would have thought of doing. I probably never would have done if I thought about it happening. And that's had a massive impact on where we are today. And the other thing about it is when I started my law firm, my thinking was that I'd just run the law firm as long as I could. And then I, when it's all over, I'd turn off the lights and lock the door. It occurred to me about 10 years ago that we had created something pretty special and it would be a shame for that to happen. So what we've done the last 10 years has been designed to keep our business open, operational, functioning, and improving for the next 100 years, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you're doing important work, yeah. right? It would be a shame for that to end. And also with a lot of these issues like hazing, we know we talked about a lot of like the civil issues, all of these things. I mean, they need you, they need members of your firm, your team, like to be able to move this mission forward. What do you see as the future of the firm? Yeah. The future of the firm will be a certainly new ownership at some point down the road. Our last three hires, we have taken from big law firms, including Jones Day. And so we have really talented lawyers out there that have joined us because they like what we're doing. They like our culture. They like the cases that we're involved in. They understand that, you know, one of our core values is family, Michael. And it's not just our families. It's our law firm family. It's our clients' families. It's family's a big part of, of our law firm. So my hope is that the future of this law firm is to continue to be involved in cases that impact the world where we can make a significant change and improvement to the way we do things in this country. We can hold wrongdoers accountable and we can continue to make the world a safer place. Have you ever heard the expression that it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war? Absolutely. So I'm curious. So there's the one side to, to Rex Elliott, obviously in the courtroom and the media, like going head to head there, but then you also have four daughters. That's and true. I'm curious what that persona is like when you're home. Yeah. You know, first of all, being a husband and a father is the, the most important thing that I've ever done in my life. And I know you're the father of two daughters. I've doubled you with yep. my four daughters. Mm -hmm. Being the father of daughters has been uh, one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given. I've had the ability to talk to my kids about others who don't have the advantages that they have. I think all of my kids have empathy in their hearts, which is very important. That's part of what I've been able to bring home to them. For instance, in the hazing situation, Michael, I can come home and I can explain real world events that have happened. And I think that makes them live their lives in a way that is less risky than maybe some other kids do. But I've worked really hard to try to not just be a, a really good lawyer, but also to be the best father that I could possibly be. That is one of the, the other reasons I started my law firm, because I knew that if I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and get my work done so I could be at home at five o'clock to coach my kids in their sporting events and be home for dinner and things like that, I thought it was very important to do that. I had a father that wasn't really focused on money and material things. Really, He was an insurance salesman. He really didn't like his career, didn't care about it. But what he did love about his life was his family. I've told this story before, but I'll never forget when I was a senior in high school, we took a bus, I was playing baseball, took a bus to the baseball field, and it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And the bus is coming up to the baseball field, and there's this one figure sitting in the stands at the baseball field before the bus even arrived, and it was my dad. And I remember my immediate reaction being one of shame. 
everybody else's dads out there working, you know, making money for their families. And here's my dad in the stands getting ready to watch his son's baseball game. It wasn't until I had kids of my own that I realized my dad had a right. And I've tried to live my life as much as I can sort of through the, the eyes that my mom and dad had, which was family is always first. And um, it's just not negotiable with me. Yeah, that's excellent. And I hear you're in the process of writing a book with, with one of your daughters. I am. That's right. So my youngest daughter was a national soccer player, and she ended up going to TCU to play soccer. And she and I are writing a book. The concept of the book is for Reese to write the book to her eight-year-old self and what she learned in the youth sports area, which is less than perfect. In fact, at times it can be pretty toxic. They're beaten down by coaches. They're body shamed. There's all kinds of things that go on that the parents don't see. And there are also important lessons for, for parents to take out of this whole situation. Parents are a big issue in youth sports today. And uh, I've got a senior in college right now who's about to end her basketball career. And it's just been great just to sit in the stands and watch it and enjoy it as it unfolds, no matter whether she's hitting shots or not. And my hope is that the book that Reese and I are putting together will have an impact on kids and parents that are about to go through the sort of youth soccer or youth basketball or youth sports programs. And, and, and Rex, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think being a game changer is, first of all, it's about commitment. Be committed to what you believe in. Don't do things that you're not committed to and that you don't believe in. I think being very humble is really an important part of being a game-changing attorney. We can get caught up in our successes and start to really think highly of ourselves. But at the end of the day, none of these cases are about me or my law firm. They're about our clients. And we always have to keep that in mind. And then hard work. When you're fighting for the underdog, you need to outwork the other side. And so that's what being a game-changing attorney means to me. But it also has to go hand-in-hand with what I said before, which is, family. That's why the lawyers and the staff in our law firm, family is a priority. And so you can be a game-changing attorney and have a, a great family life as well. Be a great dad or a great mom to your kids and a, and a great spouse as well. And that's, that's what I think a game-changing attorney is all about. I want to give a huge thank you to Rex Elliott for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Rex Elliott, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.